Hi everyone, it's lovely to connect with you again. We are in the mornings doing this series, pressing into Genesis 1 to 11, some of the most challenging and complex and potentially difficult parts of the Hebrew Bible and, and the New Testament as well, but also similarly foundational to the development of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament and therefore to our faith. So we thought we'd take a few weeks to look at them and learn as we do, not, not only what they're saying, but, but really learn from the biblical authors of how to actually read the Bible, because they've given us a lot of clues in particularly Genesis 1, but all the way through to Genesis 11, that are really helpful principles for how not just we, we hear the message, but how we actually read it in order to hear the message. So please read uh, listen to the talk last week, Genesis 1, or watch it, all the slideshows, the, there are lots of images that help explain some of the concepts, because they're, they're quite challenging concepts, but all of them hopefully explain, so on the, you can listen to the podcast, but also all the slideshow notes are there as well on the they're website, on website yeah. and then the same today, all that, and you will be seeing them now, but if you're listening to this at another time, all the images that I'm going to mention will be on the website so you can check all that a huge thank you to a number of people that i've learned about who are there they know he, ancient hebrew and ancient greek and other ancient semitic languages and near eastern languages and i i speak through interpretation i'm reliant on their knowledge the whole the list the bibliography again is on the slideshow on the first talk and i'm going to be quoting from some of them again today so we're going to start with a recap from Michael Heiser, who's brilliant. He's very good, as particularly on the unseen realm in the, for the, the biblical worldview. We'll touch more on that next week. And he says this very simple, just this very simple message. The Bible is ancient Mediterranean literature. In other words, it was written a long time ago. This sounds obvious in some ways, but I think sometimes we need to remember it because it was a beautiful moment a few hundred years ago in the development of thinking in the West, which led to a number of things. Not On one branch was the, the current understanding of natural sciences, and ironically, out of the same branch came access to scripture in English. And so we have this strange moment we're in where we see the Bible as written in English. And we live in a scientific age and we obviously have all the, the incredible fruit of the, of the scientific project as well, which we'll touch on and have touched on last week. So it's really important just to remember something very simple. This is an ancient text. English is always, I would even call it now interpretation, the more I'm understanding the decisions translators have to, have to make in order to access, get from the ancient Hebrew and the Old Testament, ancient Greek and the New Testament to English. So it's an ancient text. Whenever you go there, Imagine going to a very old country, a very long way away, who speak another language. And that's really helpful. And it's literature. We talked about this at length last time as well. But just suffice to say, the difference between a photograph of a tree and a tree we looked at, we looked at Van Gogh's night sky and the Hubble telescopes, uh, an image of the night sky. These are all, these are representations. And, and the literary nature of the Bible is it's going to be more Van Gogh's night sky than Hubble telescope. It's not as obsessed with hyper-materialism as we are, but it is 
very intentional about other things which we may not be so aware of and that's what we're going back to it it is divinely inspired we believe it's not just a lovely ancient text that we can look at and see how people in the ancient world thought but it actually is God self-limiting working through humans in the time and place they lived in order to produce something that's a transcendent word for us all and still speaks a living word today so the particular elements of the ancient world or the ancient Near East and the, the biblical authors were, they were pre-scientific. They did not live in the scientific age we live in. And this particularly is key in reading the, the Hebrew Bible, particularly around cosmology. We're going to come to that in a minute, how the universe is materially set up. They had a different reading. It was really due to their observation. All their, all their understanding of the material world was rooted in their observation. They simply were on the ground. They looked up. They, they had very complex emotional relationship with the sea, with the skies, and then with below. And it makes total sense. When I read the Bible, I go back into that and imagine what that must have been like. The highest you could ever go is up a mountain. And you saw springs and wells coming up, but people died and went down to the ground. And then the sea was complex. You needed highly sophisticated boats to be able to conquer it and even then it was touch and go whether you would drown in the chaos waters of the sea so their, their cosmology very much re reflected what it was like to live in the ancient world their their seat of their intellect they believe was was in their gut and that that was the the heart if you like or the the key to their their emotions their intelligence and they also believed in a more a primitive understanding of reproduction which i i touched on last week at the same time Everything's spiritual. I cannot emphasize this enough. Everything either was a God, which is pantheism, gods were in everything, not the biblical authors, but the ancient Near East, or everything had a God behind it. So you had statues, which were physical representations of spiritual deities. Selem, um, that word image we learnt, was actually the, the same word for idol statue that humans are made in the image of God with the selam, if you like, the living, breathing, embodied idol statues of God. Humans are in the cosmos, which is the temple. And the extraordinary message of Genesis 1 was that there is one supreme Elohim who creates everything. He's not in things. It's not pantheism. And there aren't lots of little gods that rule things and fight all the time to be the supreme ruler. But it is, it is one Elohim who created everything and that is the extraordinary message of Genesis 1 and he put us all humans as his image bearers to operate in and re represent him and his likeness and rule on his behalf over the created order everything was spiritual there was no distinction between the natural and the supernatural you wouldn't have had that kind of conversation or heard oh that's supernatural and that's natural everything was deified everything was electrified with the spiritual and that is both for the biblical authors and the ancient, the broader ancient Near Eastern worldview. And existence, we looked at this as well, is really critical for us to understand. We understand existence as something material. It actually exists. It has physical, chemical properties. In the ancient world, existence wasn't related to whether something existed or not. It was related to whether it had purpose or function, whether it was flourishing. For example, the, the culminating vision of Genesis 1, humans flourishing on the dry land, that means they existed. And when you ever come across non-order, chaos, disorder, we're going to touch on that next week in flood narratives, that actually is a regression to not the non-existent pre-creation state of those waters that the Spirit of God hovers over in Genesis 1 verse 2. 
So pre-scientific, everything spiritual, existence is related to purpose or function. And I love this quote by Fyodor Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov. In a sense, it's, it, it kind of sits with this, this vision that we have, we're alive when we have purpose. He, it's a sort of, I don't know if he was intentionally bringing a biblical worldview, but this really resonates with what we're trying to express about a biblical worldview. The mystery of human existence lies not just in staying alive, but in finding something to live for. So it's not just a material existence that isn't life or, or existence in the, the worldview of biblical authors. It's actually being alive because we have purpose. We have something to live for. And I love how he expresses that there. So we're going to briefly now look, I've touched on it, on what happened in Genesis 1. We looked at the literary origami, the beauty, the balanced symmetry and order of day one, light and dark, and day four, it was filled. Day two, the waters above and the waters below, they were filled on day five with birds and fishes. Day three, the dry land and the waters were separated. Food was put on the dry land as a bonus. And then we see again, day six, that was filled both with humans and animals. So then we also have another image. And this in some ways isn't necessarily helpful, but I think it is. This is, and, and that Tim Mackey in the Bible Project would say this as well. Our hyper materialistic world wants to get it. We want to understand how they saw the world. We want to put it in layers and in a material context so we can understand it. Again, this, this sort of need to kind of organize in a certain way. It, it isn't helpful to try and do that systematically with the Hebrew Bible. They think differently, but it is helpful in some ways as well to understand we're going into another perspective, another worldview about the cosmology. I've touched on it. So we see in day one and day one at the top, we have the light. And then day four, as I said, it's filled underneath in, in the vault, the dome above, the rakir. Very important understanding. It comes up in the flood narrative Next week, we'll be looking at that. And in the, and that's all filled in day four. We can see the waters above. So the whole thing that stops the whole thing crashing in on itself. The waters above and waters below is this dome, this rakir. And in it are embedded spiritual beings, sun, moon and stars, which were not worshipped in the, in the Genesis 1 narrative, but would have been worshipped by everyone in the ancient Near East, including people like Abraham. They all would have been worshipping stars and seen as gods. In the biblical worldview, they were seen as spiritual beings or representations of the spiritual realm. Then the separation, as I said on day two, the waters above, waters below, separating the land and sea. Then the filling, day four, five and six. Day seven, the rest. And just below, we have Sheol, which is like a watery grave. As I said, waters come up, but also people go down there when they die. Waters were both seen as negative chaos waters, you can conquer them, but as we'll see in the Genesis 2 and 3 narrative we're looking at today, they also, rivers produced life and human flourishing. So lots of these images as well are, are, are beautifully opaque and can change and shift, and we need as readers to pay attention to how the biblical authors are using these images. Great, so that's a brief understanding of their cosmology being different and a reflection on Genesis one, we're actually going to look at Genesis 2 to 3. And of course, the first thing, if anyone's read Genesis 2 to 3, some of you may not know what I'm talking about. 
go away, read Genesis 1, listen to the talk last week, read Genesis 2 and 3, listen and again to this and look at the pictures as well. But for some of you will know immediately there's a couple who come in Genesis 2 and 3 called Adam and Eve. And this is complicated because of, as I said, we had this moment a few hundred years ago where not only we were able to bring translation of the Bible into English, but we also had this incredible flourishing of the natural sciences. And suddenly we come to the 21st century and it seems that the account in English of our material origins seems incredibly different from the scientific account of our origins. And what we, we do a number of things with that. We make everything there a myth. Or we, in some cases, not, not so much, I think, in, in British culture, but can sort of start to deny or undermine that, which I don't think is helpful. Or we sort of muddle through and, 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 and not quite sure what to do with it, but kind of keep our head down and hope that it's okay, because after all, we've personally encountered God and received the Holy Spirit, so it must be true. And I'm not saying this is easy, but I am saying there are some steps we can take to help navigate this complex territory of the historical origins of humans which I think is really critical to what it is to be human and touching on things like our purpose. So was there a historical Adam and Eve? A very intelligent extraordinary scientist called S. Joshua Swamidas, we've got his book up here, you can see it on the slideshow, it has a very interesting journey and he's worth really looking at and looking, he does a lot of work peacemaking between um, Christians and atheists around science, particularly and within the Christian community around science. He's a, he's a humble, incredible guy. He's also incredibly intelligent. He's, he works in, in the area of, of human origins, of human genome projects, and he also in artificial intelligence and so on. So he's in the cutting edge of not only our material origins, but potentially our material future. At the same time, he is a devout follower of Jesus. He believes that the Bible is divinely inspired. And he actually, out of his own desire to kind of navigate this, this challenge we have between the natural sciences on the one hand and these narrative accounts of human origins on the other, to see could they have been a historical Adam and Eve. And what he did was, he's, you can read this book, and I don't, this isn't the time or place to go into it, but essentially he distinguishes between genetics and genealogy and understands that the biblical worldview, they understood genealogies, that's how they understood human ancestry. And if you do that, the surprising science he discovers is that there could have been a couple in the Middle East as near as four to 6,000 years ago who are, who are related to everyone today if you do it via genealogy rather than genetics. Brilliant book, really fascinating. Also a really honourable man who is seeking to bring peace in a fractured and, and difficult terrain. So just for that alone, I would, I would recommend him and his work. So essentially, I think what, what we're, we've kind of come to, I think, is that Adam and Eve are historical, but they don't necessarily need to be the first or only humans. Don't forget what we learned about literary representation of historical events. The, the, the inspired nature of the Bible is not in, in, a, in the, the events themselves. It's in how the divine, it's in how the biblical authors are divinely inspired to represent them, the photograph rather than the actual tree. So little things like they wouldn't have been called Adam and Eve, as these are Hebrew words for humanity and life. 
and the Hebrew language had simply not been invented at the time, the primeval setting of the Garden of Eden narrative. And so I, I think this is a very, a very helpful quote. Just listen to this. It's from The Lost World of Adam and Eve. We're, we'll stick on the same slide, but just listen to this quote by John Walton, who unpacks that a bit more. The word Adam, Adam, and this is why it's so confusing, is a Hebrew word meaning human. Regarding this observation, the fact that it is Hebrew, written millennia after the primeval setting of the garden narrative, indicates the category designation human is imposed by those who spoke Hebrew. Adam and Eve would not have called themselves by these names because whatever language they spoke, it wasn't Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't exist as a language until somewhere in the middle of the second millennium BC. Although I believe that Adam and Eve are historical personages, real people in a real past, these cannot be their historical names. The names are Hebrew and there is no Hebrew at the point in time when Adam and Eve lived. It's just really helpful to think through that, isn't it? Again, something we don't really access when we read it in English, but in Hebrew, it just would have been, the, it's just the Hebrew word Adam, which means human. So when you read it like that, it, it, you hear it differently. So he carries on. If these are not their historical names, then they must be assigned names intended by the Hebrew-speaking users to convey a particular meaning. In other words, the authors are divinely inspired to assign them names at the moment of writing, or over time through oral tradition, then at the moment of writing. Such a deduction leads us to a second observation. In English, if we read that someone's name is human and his partner's name is life, we quickly develop an idea, an impression of what is being communicated. And he gives this great example in Pilgrim's Progress, characters are called Christian, faithful and hopeful. These characters, by virtue of their assigned names, are larger than the historical characters to whom they prefer. They represent something beyond themselves. Consequently, just in observing that, we can see from the start that interpretation of this narrative is not going to be straightforward from our perspective. I find that immensely helpful. So Adam and Eve are assigned names to real people in a real past by later authors who are divinely inspired to represent something that is greater than their actual biographies. And that, that, that means they are archetypes, which means they represent a design or pattern of what it is to be human, what it is to have life. I find that immensely helpful. So going back to what we looked at last week, as we now enter into these narratives, the Garden of Eden narrative, Genesis 2 and 3, we need to be, I love these words, Tim Mackey, who co-founder of the Bible Project, we need to listen, we need to be respectful travellers, we need to listen to the biblical authors on their own terms. I find it really funny, we'll, we'll just stick on that slide, sometimes I think um, it, when I'm, maybe I've got, I'm an extrovert with some problem to solve and I'm talking to Chris, he's an introvert, and doesn't say as much, sometimes I go to him with my problem, externally process it, resolve it, and then go away again. Haven't asked him how he's doing, how his day is, he hasn't said a word. But the whole thing is an external process on my behalf to resolve my problem. I think sometimes we approach a hyper-materialistic worldview, approaches the Bible like that, particularly Adam and Eve, 
or maybe Genesis 1. We go with it, we process it. Some of us don't care at all. I'm aware some of us, this is not in our radar, it's not how we think. But for some of us, we might go to it, process all this stuff, read all these books, do all these things, and get some sort of resolution, you know, of something that helps. And then we go away again. And we haven't actually taken a moment to say, what were the biblical authors trying to communicate? How can I actually listen to what they're saying? Not what I need them to say, what I hope they're saying, what I want them to say, but they're not saying. Well, how can I actually go to them and just hear what they are saying? And this is what we're doing, is learning how to read the Bible in order to receive that message. So we're learning to be good listeners. My New Year's resolution 2021 is to be, is to listen. And so I'm learning to listen to the Bible, to people and to God. And it is extremely challenging, but really rewarding because other people and the biblical authors and God thinks differently to me. So it's an incredibly rich and dynamic way to live, to learn to listen. So we're learning what good communication is. Now, an author is in a very difficult position because unlike an actual conversation, Chris could have interrupted me or he could have done, you know, something dynamic could happen if he really wanted to communicate something. I could, if I didn't understand him, ask him to repeat something. But an author doesn't have that strategy because an author's word is passed on through the written word, the text. So in the text, if an author wants to communicate an idea to to a good listener, they have to communicate well in such a way that any questions they think are relevant that the reader might have or the listener, because a lot of this biblical, the biblical text would have been spoken for most of its history. Then the, the author needs to put in the text very carefully any, any help he can give to the reader to preempt those questions or the listener to preempt those questions in the design, in the way he actually writes the text. So this is this was groundbreaking for me, this book by John Sailhammer, The Pentateuch's Narrative. The Pentateuch is the first five books. The author, I think this is on the next slide, the author must anticipate the reader's questions. So the biblical author is going to ha- is writing something and they're going to be anticipating what are my audience going to be asking and construct the text in such a way that responses which a reader is likely to have will be satisfied as the text is read, or in the case of the biblical authors, read and reread and reread. In a text, such repetitions often become an essential part of the author's strategy. They haven't got anyone living saying, what do you mean by that? Can you explain that? They have to preempt those questions and those problems with repetition. One For one reading of biblical text, such repetitions and helpful guides to the author's are helpful guides to the author's purpose and intention. I said it last week, a key to reading and trying to understand the message the biblical authors are trying to communicate is by paying attention to repetition. The repetition can be one word. We looked at good, how good was repeated, how there was nothing that was good on day two, and two things were good on day three, and we noted day six was very good, tov. The absence of the word tov in day two points us to the author's communication that it, the whole momentum of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 is for humans flourishing on the dry land, something which the division of waters above and below on day two would be progressing towards, but wouldn't help until dry land appears and food on day three, and then both are good. So we pay attention to the repetitions and we pay attention to the absence. We hear the rhythms and then we hear where that rhythm slightly changes or is interrupted or moved. We do it one word. We also do it in whole literary units. 
you'll find that there are two whole accounts of, for example, the kings of Judah in both Kings and the Chronicles. And so we pay attention to the way these are repeated texts, but also the differences between them to hear the message the biblical authors are seeking to communicate. So, how to read the Bible. We looked at these four last week, we'll look at these four this week, we'll look at these four again next week. Firstly, we pay attention to literary units. That is, it's looking at the beginning and end of a text of similar words or phrases. So, for example, in gen- the beginning of Genesis 2, there's some debate as to whether it starts in 2-4-A or 2-4-B. But we see this Adam, this human, his place is made of dust, placed in a garden, and there's a tree of life. We go to the end of chapter 3, and we see this Adam is, there's a, a, a word over him, to dust, dust you are, and to dust you return. Adam are, it's upon Adam, and Adam are on dust. And they're barred from the tree of life. So you feel there's a literary unit between somewhere near the beginning of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 3. Those are the Garden of Eden narrative unit. Within that, there are a number of other units, but we're just going to do that. So that's what you're paying attention to. What are the kind of similar words? What's going on in this passage? And find literally find the bookends through paying attention to the actual words. Then within that, pay attention to repetition. I'm actually going to do a bigger repetition Today, we did word and evening and morning last week. I'm going to do the whole narrative, creation narrative repetition, because there's one in Genesis 1, and you see, again, another creation narrative account in Genesis 2. And we're going to look at those together as our big repeat repetition. But there'll be smaller repetitions. There's also the repetition of the idea of the Garden of Eden as a sacred space, a temple or a tabernacle, which reflects the larger idea in Genesis 1 of the whole cosmos and sacred space. Then you need to, we need to pay attention. So it's literary units, repetition, then hearing the verbal waves break, climax. And we see that the Eden narrative, like the Genesis 1 narrative, climaxes in a poem. Again, the second poem in the Bible. The first poem is where God creates humanity, fulfilling that balanced and ordinary, beautiful symmetry of separating and filling. He creates humanity, he separates, and then he fills with male and female, and they reflect the Elohim. And there's a poem, then there's this beautiful rest, the seven-day triumphant rest, as it's all good and it's all done. So you see, the Eden narrative does the same thing. It climaxes in a poem. The first words given to the man as he speaks are the woman. He sees a woman after he's been put into a deep sleep. He wakes up and he sees her and he says a poem. She is other, but she's the same, unlike the animals. But there isn't a lovely rest. There isn't a nice seven-day moment of, we're in bliss, we're in Eden. Right at the moment where you should expect the climax of the poem, then the rest, you have a crafty creature coming in, the beginning of chapter three, and you have this slow and brutal, tragic descent into exile, snake, Woman, man, man, woman, snake, snake, woman, man, excellent. And that's what we're listening for. We're listening for the artistry of the authors. So pay attention to literary units. Pay attention to any repetition, including alterations. Pay attention to the verbal waves climaxing and breaking in that. And then read and reread the Hebrew Bible. It's meant to be Jewish meditation literature. There are Edens 
false Edens, anti-Edens, and full narratives, the one we're going to look at today, populate the Hebrew Bible. This, is, this doesn't just happen once, it happens again and again and again. And through doing that, we begin to hear what the biblical authors were trying to communicate. So the first thing you do in the next, I love this, um, insight by Robert Alter, The Art of Biblical Narrative, is the first thing we see, if you go back one to the Guernica, um, the first thing we see is this repetition, as I said, of creation narratives. And that's what we're going to look at now. And we may, in the past, I think, biblical scholarship has, has has seen it as all these bits and pieces that later redactors, as they're called, or editors, have had to compile and keep them because they're supposedly sacred, but it's actually a bit of a hodgepodge. But more recent scholarship is beginning to discover the incredible artistry and sophistication of the way all these little different repeated passages and literary units have been put together. Like a mosaic is an image that's been used, a photo montage, Quilt, just that it actually there's something very, there's an intelligent design about putting these passages next to each other, particularly these two creation narratives. This is Robert Alter, he's a Jewish scholar, he's recently done a translation of the Hebrew Bible. Um, he writes, thankfully, in English as well, called The Art of Biblical Narrative, and I found this really helpful. The decision to place in sequence two ostensibly contradictory accounts of the same event, Genesis 1 narrative account, Genesis 2 narrative account, is an uh, origin narrative account, is an approximate narrative equivalent to the technique of post-Cubist painting. So this is, this is Pablo Picasso's famous for his, his Cubist paintings, which gives us, for example, juxtaposed or superimposed a profile and a frontal perspective of the same face. I don't know if you can remember that, if you can think of those ones where you see the eyes from the front, but also how they would have been seen from the side, and that's classic cubism. The ordinary eye can never see those two at once, but it is the painter's prerogative to represent them as a simultaneous perception within the visual frame of his painting, whether merely to explore the formal relationships between the two views or to provide an encompassing representation of his subject. Analogously, the Hebrew writer takes advantage of the composite nature of his art, these two accounts, to give us attention of views that govern, and these will govern most biblical stories. This is incredibly important to pay attention to repetition, pay attention to the differences and the similarities. They are there on purpose. They're not an accident or a mistake or someone trying to protect sacred text. They are intentional to communicate a meaning. And in, in a funny kind of way, while we are hyper-materialistic in our, in our wanting to understand the material world, when it comes to art, we're actually sceptical of hyper-realistic paintings or portraits or, or any images that claim to be like photography. And even photography, we wonder, we're, we're concerned about the authenticity. And actually, we're more at home in the art world with something like that depiction of war than a highly realistic photo of, tragically, the bombing in 1937 at Guernica. We're, we almost can handle that more. Art does something which helps us because we're not just material and war destroys us. And we need a way to navigate the, the, the humanity that is beyond the material, but sometimes hyperrealism it, it fails to do. 
And we would see that as an intelligent design. We wouldn't dismiss that as primitive. We know what he's doing. He's, he's depicting the horrors of the killing of animals and children and humans in war. So we've got this comparison, this contrast in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to look at them now. We've got a list of them up here because I wanted you to be able to see those as well. So firstly, the key figure, divine being, in Genesis 1 is, has not got a name. It is a title, Elohim. It's actually the plural for spiritual beings, but, but the Elohim creates in the singular the seabed of the, the later revelation of the Trinitarian God. The potentiality of majesty, as Jewish scholars would call him, who don't believe in the Trinitarian God, who believe in monotheism, one God. Either way, this is a title. This is not someone, this is not a name. It's not someone you know. Whereas in Genesis 2, the, the name is given to God, Elohim. The name is Yahweh. It is a personal covenantal. It is the name given to Israel's God, Yahweh. And this, this extreme, this just that alone shows us the garden narratives are doing something very personal, very intimate, covenantal. This is not a supreme, uncreated being with royal ease speaking the universe into being. This is someone who is deeply and personally involved in the human experience and the human condition. It says in Genesis 3, he walks in the cool of the day, in the breeze of the garden. So it's vast and cosmic, Genesis 1, but Genesis 2 is human and personal. Genesis 1 is creation through words. This is an incredibly important principle throughout the Bible, the power of words to, to build or destroy. And there's also creation through clay. This actually is a common occurrence in the ancient Near Eastern texts, but some of them are the clay as a result of the blood of the enemies, the gods of the enemies that have been spilled and sort of violent forming of humans out of this violent struggle. Clay is often used as well in the Hebrew Bible as a metaphor, as an image. So Je Jeremiah sees God as the, as the potter with Israel, as the clay. This is often a, a metaphor for how the artistry, the craftsmanship of God making or working with humans. There's a very different narrative order in the chronology in the creation stories. You have that balanced, beautifully butted, ordered, symmetrical, prolific literary style of Genesis 1, reflecting the beautiful, ordered, prolific mind of the Elohim who spoke a beautiful, ordered, and prolific universe into existence. You see it in a very literary style. Whereas it's, it, it's human, then there's vegetation, then there are animals. And in the animal section, God isn't really mentioned at all. It's between human and the animals and then woman. It's very different. It's a bit more haphazard and, and it's a bit more risky. We're going to come to that in a minute. Even the literary style is distinct from the highly sophisticated, stylized, regal procession of Genesis 1. Then we see in, that the whole cosmos is a temple. We looked at that last week, and we'll look at it this in a minute now. But, but there are many references to the mountain garden of Eden as a sacred space. And that is something that, that Jewish readers would have been familiar with. So the emphasis on Genesis 1 is that humans are royal. We're designed to rule. But the emphasis on Genesis 2 is, yes, we're royal, made in God's image, but we're actually priests designed to minister to God and on his behalf. So those images of God to rule, but, it, but the priestly Adam is, is given to work, avad, 
and take care of the garden. Exactly the same work that the priests were given later in the tabernacle and temple narratives. And the word avad actually is a pun, Hebrew pun, both work as in physical work, any kind of labouring, creating, making and actual worship. Worship of God is the same word. We see that everything's good in Genesis 1. There's no malignant force that might break out, no primeval evil that might just overtake the Elohim. He is supreme. He is in charge. Goodness will begin and end the universe. The the disorder in Genesis 1 verse 2 is easily overcome. There are even sea creatures in Genesis uh, 1 in in day 5. There's a tannin, which is a sea monster in other translations, but because it's so benevolently playing in the sea, it's not even chaos waters or an evil sea monster, which it later becomes in the Hebrew Bible. It's just this lovely sea creature, so complex that translators don't know what to call it. In, in what to call this sea creature, because there's just no evil coming out. It's just, it's under the goodness of God, and it's benevolently playing, as it should, in, in the sea. Whereas you get to Genesis 2, and you hear for the first time something's not good. It's when man and dam is alone, and there is no one to partner with him. You get male and female, as I've described, which are also given to the name of species, later in Hebrew, sheep, and so on. But... In the, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, but you get man and woman, the only, the only beings given those titles are humans, and woman is always interchangeable with wife. Man is often, there are two words for man, Adam, but the other one is always interchangeable with husband, and it's the same for the, for the woman as well in the Greek and the New Testament, and there are two words, one of which can also be translated husband in the New Testament too. These are covenantal words. These are showing that, remember, everything is spiritual, in the Hebrew Bible. And when a man and woman have sex, it's not a covenantal act. It's Sorry, it's not just a physical act. It's a covenantal act because they become echad, one flesh. You see that in the culmination of Genesis 2. And they become the same echad as Yahweh Elohim is later described as one, indivisible within that unit, reflecting the diversity and the fullness of the Elohim. And out of that covenantal Union become covenantal children, and they grow up, become echad with their covenantal spouses. Again, the how, the blessing on the male and female in the Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, increase, fill the earth. The purpose in Genesis 1 is shown in the how, through how man and woman are to live in this covenantal way, reflecting the beauty, the order, the symmetry, and the prolific nature of the covenantal God. Everything is spiritual. And then finally, you have the general principle. And this, to me, I find incredibly challenging, pretty much terrifying, especially since having children. Genesis 1, you have this supreme Elohim who's good, he's benevolent, and with royal ease, he says, let there be, let there be, let there be. There's no commands. It's just generous power sharing in Genesis 1. He's benevolent, he's good, he's in charge. And then you get Genesis 2, and suddenly you get this risk, this freedom of choice, words like life and death, good and evil. And you realise, and I I find this still the most terrifying reality, (laughs) that humans are completely free agents to do what they want before God. We've been released autonomy way more than we know it. We are significant, but we're also autonomous. And there is a moment where he just gives one prohibition. There are two ways to live, by my wisdom or in independence. 
if you want a life and if you want to hit the goal of human flourishing on the dry land, which is the vision of Genesis 1, then you live by my wisdom and intimacy with me, walking with me, with all the these beautiful images of intimacy that Genesis 2 has given. But if you want to do it on your own, in independence from me, seek to understand what is tov in your own eyes, what is good and ra, evil, in your own eyes, redefine good and evil, you can do that too. But you will die, it won't work out well. But you are free, there's going to be no thunderbolt of heaven, no divine intervention, you are going to stand and you're going to be human. I've made you to rule and I power share and I don't take the power sharing back. I find that absolutely terrifying. From the moment I had children, I realised we are free to steward well or badly. And that's what Genesis 2 is all about, and, that, and 3. And that's why, for me, it is pertinent today, even though it's an ancient text. What we do matters. We are significant. And we can, we can work with God to produce human flourishing on the dry land. Or we can resist him, do it our own way, redefine good and evil in our own understanding, and produce death and tragedy and destruction. That, that's, what, that's what they're saying. That's what these two narratives next to each other are saying. In another words, the Garden of Eden wasn't a physical space, just a physical space because everything was spiritual in the worldview of the ancient, the biblical authors. The Garden of Eden is sacred space. Just like the temple, the whole cosmos is sacred space. So the Garden of Eden is sacred space. And this is, this is very familiar to Jewish readers. I'm just going to read a bit from John Walton, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. The garden into which Adam, the human, was placed would be a familiar setting for sacred space in the ancient world. The image of fertile waters flowing from the sacred space of God's presence is one of the most common iconography of the ancient Near East. So essentially, when God tells Moses later to build the tabernacle and then Solomon has a blueprint from David to build the temple, what they're doing is building mini Edens. So you have a number of regions when you read Genesis 2 and 3. You have a whole region called Eden, which literally is just the Hebrew for delight. So if you're just reading it in Hebrew, it's just a region called delight. We've kept the Hebrew name, given it a capital E, the Hebrew word, like we've done with Adam, and we've made it, it's called Eden. That is just a region called delight. In, the, in, the, in this region, there is a garden, the garden of delight, the garden of Eden. And then in the middle of the garden are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge or experience that's the same in the biblical worldview of good and evil, tov and ra. Evil isn't a conceptual thing. Evil is what happens when we live in our own wisdom. That, that is what the tabernacle and temple were trying to reproduce a way back to the tree of life, living by God's wisdom. So in a sense, we've touched on this already, Genesis 1 is looking at purpose and Genesis 2 is looking at how. Our purpose is to rule over the cosmos as kings and queens on God's behalf at the family level, the community level, the work level and the governmental level. All levels of authority, every human is designed to rule on God's behalf as his kings and queens, representing his generosity, his power sharing, his benevolence, his prolific and abundant and creative mind and will. How are humans to rule on God's behalf? 
Well, there's, there's a lot of readings of Adam and Eve in this, in this narrative as childlike and innocent, even though they're adults, that their nakedness is a representation almost of their naivety, of their, their need for wisdom. They don't have wisdom. They don't have the wisdom they need to rule. They're childlike. And so they're given a choice. You need, humans need wisdom to rule. You can either rule through eating of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, rule in your own wisdom and your own understanding and your own ways, or you can rule in my wisdom, in my ways, representing and reflecting me. So we see immediately God can see if something is tov or it's not tov, good or not good. Good is pleasing, it's how things should be, fit for purpose. But humans can also decide what is tov in their own eyes. So the great temptation is to rule, and this is so pertinent today, so I want us to really listen to this, the great temptation that is given to the humans in the garden is to rule for one's own benefit at the expense of others and the land. That's the great temptation, the easy, low-hanging fruit, where I am satisfied as a ruler, but other people pay a price for my rule and my leadership. I'm going to keep using the word rule because it's uncomfortable, but it's a design principle and we need to live into how God's designed us to fulfill that mandate. The great invitation, so that's the temptation, but the great invitation of Genesis 2 and 3 is to rule by God's wisdom at one's own expense, but for the benefit of human flourishing on the dry land. So we say no to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we pass it by to access the tree of life. To say no to eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is to say no to ruling for one's own benefit at the expense of others. Our, almost all of our problems with the word rule is because all we've ever seen is abdication or abuse. We've never seen God ruling through humans as it was designed to be done. Well, not quite never, and we'll come to that in a minute. So the consequences... Humans choose to rule in independence from God's wisdom. Tragic, absolutely tragic. They just can't quite believe they're significant enough. They can't, they don't quite want to walk with God. They want to access it on their own terms. They start from then on redefining good and evil, Tov and Ra, on their own terms, according to what they see in their own eyes. A pattern, a design pattern through the Hebrew Bible is how people view it. Is it viewed through God's eyes or humans' eyes? And that is a real marker for how much humans are fulfilling their design pattern as God's representatives. Are, are we seeing what is tov in our own eyes? Or are we seeing what is tov in the eyes of God? Humans are exiled from the life of God because you can't do both. We either live in our own wisdom or we live in God's. We either define what's tov in God's eyes and walk with that or we tov and ra, good and evil. In, God, in our own eyes, and, and we can't access the life of God. But there is one glimmer of hope right at the heart of this passage in Genesis 3. The woman is promised a human seed who will crush the snake's head. So although there's this tragic decline into exile outside the life of God, Right at the heart of it is a promise. The woman is promised a human seed who will crush the snake's head. So now we have to understand 
why did the biblical authors write the Bible? We talked about this last week, we'll talk about this this week, and we'll talk about it next week. These are the scriptures. First of all, we have Peter. These are all people in the New Testament thinking about why the Hebrew Bible was put together. So particularly why Genesis 1, 2, and 3, for, for today's purposes, were written. So Peter talks about it as an interpretation. In a sense, all history is interpretation. It's a historian interpreting, interpreting events. What Peter claims is the interpretation is inspired by God. It's divinely inspired interpretation of, of events. Jesus says they all point to him. The Hebrew Bible, the Torah, Torah the Nevim, the Kunitudin, the Tanakh points to him. And Paul says... These are wisdom literature given to enable us to live a wise life. What did we not want in Eden? We didn't want God's wisdom for ruling. We wanted to be wise in our own eyes. So God gives us the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament to enable to live in God's wisdom in order to produce human flourishing on the dry land. So it's inspired. It points to Jesus and it's wisdom for life. This promise of a seed of a woman who will crush the seed of the snake is a design pattern that links the whole Hebrew Bible. I'm going to give you a few examples, and then you'll see how the biblical authors are just, just knitting and weaving these ideas together. Moses he inaugurates a new creation. He takes a lot in the Exodus narrative, the writer does from the Genesis 1 narrative. He splits the waters horizontally this time, not vertically, as in day two. And the people walk through onto dry land into the, into, they're supposed to get to the promised land of a new Eden. His tabernacle, which takes them there, as we've looked at, is a mini Eden for all sorts of reasons. There's all sorts of imagery around the tabernacle, which is reflecting an echo in Eden. But he doesn't fully represent God. He gets so close, he radiates on a mountain, a sacred mountain, which is echoing Eden. But he, can't, he doesn't fully represent God. And so he cannot enter the new Eden. And in fact, prophesies that another prophet, a person will come. And at this point, we begin to see a silhouette. There's this, this human seed is going to come who will crush the snake. Moses, at the end of the first five books, prophesies that a silhouette will come sorry, prophesies that a prophet will come. So there's this image of a human that's going to maybe be the image of the Elohim who will rule on the dry land, who will rule as God has designed humanity to rule. David, is he going to be the seed? Is he going to be the prophet? It looks like it. He establishes Jerusalem on a sacred mountain reminiscent of Eden. But he sees, listen to this, this is a brilliant design narrative that is, 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 is basically David's full narrative. He sees someone who's forbidden, who's toe, who's beautiful. Not a fruit, but a woman. She's forbidden because she's married. He sees someone toe, he takes her, exactly like Eve saw the fruit and took it. Kills Bathsheba's husband and tries to cover it up. And that is David's full narrative. He is not going to fulfill the silhouette. He is not the new Adam, the new human. And there's this momentum that is built up through the Hebrew Bible. But he's promised a son, a descendant on his throne who will rule over the nations forever. Solomon, his son, 
is likened to a new Adam because what does he do when he's young and he's innocent and he's childlike and he's given leadership? He's given the rule and the reign of the kingdom. God says you can have anything. What does he choose? And like in the Garden of Eden, he asks God for wisdom. He wants to live God's ways. He wants to to understand the world the way God understands it and inhabits it. And it looks like possibly everyone's under their own vine and fig tree in the golden early years of Solomon's reign. Is this Eden? Is he the new Adam? Is he the one who's going to crush the snake's head? Is this happening? But utterly tragically, he has hundreds of wives and concubines. He brings in forced labour to build uh, the temple, but also his palace, taking double the years for his palace. And he turns away and worships the foreign gods his foreign wives. He turns to idolatry. He, his full narrative is the latter years of his life. And then you have Daniel, one of the last books to, to get into the Hebrew Bible. Some of it's not even in ancient Hebrew, it's in Aramaic. He's like a new Adam because he's at peace with the animals in a lion's den, which is an image of Eden. But he prophesies that a son of Adam, a son of humanity, will come. He's not the one. There was one who will come and exercise dominion over the nation. So you see, that's what the Hebrew Bible's doing, starting with Adam and person after person after person. I've only given a few examples. There's this silhouette, there's this person, this Adam, this human, who's going to come and will rule, will be a divine ruler on God's behalf. This is the longing, this is the anguish, this is the yearning of the Hebrew Bible. A new Adam who will resist the temptation to rule according to his own wisdom, but will live by God's wisdom and seek to determine what is good and evil according to God's interpretation, not his own. And it ends, the Hebrew Bible ends on that note of desire, on that silhouette. You need someone, a Mashiach, a Messiah, an anointed one to come and be a true human. And the gospel writers are all over this with their imagery. They use Eden, anti-Eden imagery all the way through to account for Jesus's ministry. At the bookends of his ministry, all four talk about him going through the chaos waters of baptism in his baptism and testing narrative. He's, he's again going through like a new exodus. He's going through the waters of baptism it out, but not into an Eden, the other side, into a wilderness He inaugurates a new creation, a new exodus, and for 40 days fasts, and at the end faces who we now know the snake is, the Satan. That's translated for us right at the end in Revelation. He faces three temptations. To eat when he thinks he needs to eat. To rule the kingdoms of the earth in his own wisdom. And to prove his identity, denying the reality that he's already significant. He resists all those temptations completely and wholeheartedly. And in an anti-Eden wilderness exile, Jesus completely removes the barrier back to Eden. And we see at the end of his life, there are gardens and mountains everywhere. There are mountains all the way through. He has key moments, mountains where heaven and earth meet in a biblical worldview. But the, the biggest wrestle of his life, is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, where olives were pressed, the oil of olive oil was poured out. He wrestles. Will he lay down his life? Will he rule at great personal expense so that others will flourish in the land? And on the night of his 
crucifixion, he comes to a breakthrough. I will. I will lay down my life. I will rule in the way God's designed us to rule through self-sacrifice in order to release others to greatness. He reverses that original garden narrative where the humans seek to rule for their own benefit at the cost of others. Jesus chooses to die to self for the benefit of others. He is betrayed in the same garden by one of his closest friends. He is crucified on a tree. There are trees in Eden. He was crucified on a tree on a mountain. Eden was a sacred mountain garden outside Jerusalem. He's buried in a garden and through his resurrection from the garden tomb, inaugurates the new Eden. He fulfills completely the yearning, the longing, the anguish, the need that the Hebrew, the authors of the Hebrew Bible have set us up to want. He's shown us what it is to be truly human and to rule as God's divine representative on earth. And we see right at the end of the Bible, there is a reversal in Genesis 20 to 22 of, sorry, 20 to 22 of Genesis 3 back to Genesis 1. If you read Genesis 1 to 3 and then read 20 to 22, you will see that the very Jewish writer, John, the visionary, is reversing the fall. Revelation. Revelation is reversing the fall. So firstly, we see the snake. The enemy is fully and completely defeated before that in Revelation. And then Jesus comes with a bride, for a bride comes into a new Eden, into a new creation, a renewed heaven and earth. So Genesis 2 shows the creation of an Adam, a human. He's laid down in his sleep. And out of his side, a woman is built. The word rib came through the Wycliffe translation in the King James and is not the most helpful understanding. It's, it's really an architectural tabernacle temple term of literally out of his side, a woman is built. He sees her and they're designed to partner together. In Jesus' sacrificial death, a woman, a bride, followers of Jesus are formed out of his side, built through his sacrificial death to be his fellow royal priesthood, to rest and rule with and on God's heart behalf forever. And then finally we get to that Genesis 1 silhouette being fulfilled. Genesis 1 creates the silhouette of a male and female ruling as God's human representatives over the cosmos. And in Revelation 22, we see a silhouette of Christ, that fulfilled by Christ and his bride, the people of God, followers of Jesus, resting and ruling from the new Eden, the heart of the new creation, forever. So what does this say about wise living today? Remember the scriptures, Peter says their interpretation, but they're divinely inspired interpretation. Jesus, at the end of Luke, says they point to him. And Paul says they're wisdom for life today. I think Genesis 1 says we're significant. We learned that last week. And Genesis 2 is inviting us to a surrendered life. A life that says no 
to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and trying to work it out and do it all on our own wisdom and our own understanding, redefining good and evil according to what we want it to be. Surrendering that, trusting the benevolent, royal, generosity, goodness of the God we've seen revealed already in Genesis 1. That when we trust him, we enter into human flourishing. All humanity, every single person we see is created in God's image to rule. And we treat ourselves like that and we treat others like that. But ruling looks like servant leadership. Ruling is Christ crucified. That is the image of his enthronement. The culmination of the gospel narratives was Christ on a tree on a mountain. That's what leadership looks like. Christ crucified, laying our lives down for the benefit of others that they may flourish at the family level the community level, the work level, and the governmental level. When we rely on God's wisdom to rule at cost to ourselves for the benefit of others, we embody that royal priesthood, the royal from Genesis 1, the priesthood from Genesis 2. We become Christ-like. We fulfil that silhouette. And we live in to the vision of God's human divine representatives resting and ruling with him who live in to the vision of the end in mind. Thanks, Alice. Wow. Great. So I wonder uh, what was coming up for you as Alice was speaking? What was what was God saying to you? What were the what were the light bulbs? What were the questions coming up? And my journey, we've been, uh, Alice particularly, but we've been tracking this for, for a while. And a lot of my journey has been, um, has been, uh, I think in the past, particularly, uh, I felt like I had to be able to justify and defend the Bible, uh, particularly events in Genesis, um, to a scientific criticism. And as Alice kind of said at the beginning, there was this thing of, yes, I've, I've encountered Jesus. I know him. I know God's real. And, 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 and therefore I feel like part of my responsibility is to fight his corner <laughs> and, um, and defend, defend him and, and so on. And so I, I've, I've approached Genesis with, with, I guess with fear a little bit. I don't see how these things fit together. Um, uh, if I can't robustly refute a scientific argument, then am I denying my faith and, and what, what does it really stand on? But the, the, the liberation, the freedom that comes from this is recognizing that actually I'm never called to it's not a scientific text. It wasn't written like that, was it, as Alice has said. And recognising it as poetry and literature and, and treating it as that doesn't actually undermine my faith and make me into a, a wussy, weak, weak-faith Christian. Actually, there's far more in there, isn't there, that is enormous. Uh, you know, it, it shows us, as Alice was saying, what, what was her thing last week? It was about our significance, wasn't it? And it, was, it shows us that we're significant. And it shows us that we, we're created with a purpose and that we're known with God that we're known by God and that we have a, a life that we can, that we can walk. And those things are huge. These are big, big um, things of faith and uh, things that we can wrestle with. So I'm finding just so much life in, in, in Genesis as we're going through that. And hopefully as well, it's bringing up good things for you. These are some long talks. We're conscious of that, but we need to give it time. And these are, these are kind of building blocks, really, for our faith. Um, at the moment, my personal current quest, uh, question I'm asking God is around holiness. I'm, I'm reading Exodus right now. I, I don't understand why God is so remote in, in, in Exodus. You can't touch the mountain and you'll be killed. For me, that's difficult. I don't understand that, how that squares with Jesus being so hands-on, come and touch me, touching people. And so I've got a real question about holiness right now. And, and you've probably got questions as well that are coming up as, we, as we're looking at that. 
Um, so do dig into them. Uh, it could be that in our, in our, in our, around our coffee tables here this afternoon, that might be a good place for you to chew that with people. But in two weeks' time, Alice is going to do a kind of a question and response. Um, so do send those, send those over in whatever way the, the questions that you have. And she's going to be uh, doing the third part of, of, of this uh, mini series on Genesis um, uh, next week, and then the fourth one will be uh, will be kind of questions and response. So um, uh, this is a great use of our time to be uh, investing uh, in, in these in these ancient scriptures, and and uh, it's so amazing the way that they point to Jesus and bring us such life. I'm just going to finish by praying. Lord, thank you for, for what Alice has been able to bring us today. And we pray that um, that these uh, seeds, these truths, these insights uh, that are from you, uh, feed us, nourish us, and, and produce good fruit in our lives. We love you. We give our lives to you. We sit underneath your authority and your word uh, and want to be shaped into your image. Thank you. Amen. Great. Uh, we'll finish there, and uh, good to good to be with you, and uh, see some of you later on. <laughs>